Welcome to Elevated, where technology and leadership come together to advance the art and science of the project professional. Through tailored professional learning, we provide executive and professional education experiences to shape curious, future-ready leaders through customized programs. In this podcast, we will be discussing industry trends, product innovation, agility, and technologies that have the potential to shape markets. The topics we cover will be closely aligned with the custom courses offered at the CTME, Caltech Center for Technology and Management Education. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. Welcome to our February edition of Elevated. Elevated is Caltech Center of Technology and Management Education's monthly live stream talking about relevant technology, management, and leadership topics that we think that would be of interest to you. We started this whole activity off last month with a bang. We actually had a wonderful speaker in Diana Larson, who talked about leadership and agility leadership topics. And I thought that was a wonderful one. So I had to go through amazing struggle to find a second speaker to come up to that same bar that we have. And I think we've done that here today. We have our speaker today is Robin Jesus Thossian, who is a thought leader in the area of the future of work, ways of work here. I remember meeting Robin back in uh, April at one of our executive programs here at Caltech, and he was a very engaging and warm person to talk to on an individual basis, and much more exciting to hear about when he got up and spoke in front of the crowd. So it's with my pleasure here to talk about Robin and have him give you a little bit about his background, his speech, and also the exciting book that he wrote. So I don't want to take any of those things away from them. So with that said, turn it over to you. Take it over, Robin. Hi, Nate. Uh, thanks uh, Thanks for the opportunity to spend some time here on uh, on the program. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. I have really enjoyed my collaboration with Caltech over the last couple of years and um, I'm thrilled to be a part of the, uh, the exec ed faculty there. What I'd like to do is to talk a little bit about the future of work and um, share with you a bit of a retrospective on how we're seeing work evolve how some of our more recent experiences, whether it's coming out of the pandemic, whether it's with the dramatic advances in AI, specifically generative artificial intelligence in the form of chat GPT, among others, are continuing to transform work. Share a couple of frameworks with you um, that I hope will be helpful in navigating some of these changes and uh, time permitting, maybe end with a couple of case studies and examples to make this real. To Nate's introduction, I've done a fair bit of work around the future of work, have written uh, four books on the topic, and I also sit on the World Economic Forum Steering Committee on Work and Employment. And as we go through our conversation today, I'll touch on some of the ideas and frameworks for my most recent book, Work Without Jobs, that was uh, published last year. So maybe just to get us going, um, I'd like to start with a bit of a retrospective on how work has evolved, because I think it's helpful to kind of look back to get a sense of where we've come from, because we often find some good markers as to where we're going. Uh, so forgive me, forgive the history lesson, if you will, this early in the day for, for some of you. You know, if you think back to how many of us work today, the ways in which we work, this notion of us being in jobs, full-time jobs, not all of us, certainly, but many of us, you know, that one-to-one relationship between jobs and job holders, the, this 
idea of disparate activities being aggregated into jobs, jobs into job families, those job families into functions and divisions into companies, you know, was really born about 140 years ago. Think of when Henry Ford adapted the assembly line and organized work within the context of a factory. This notion of the company as a social construct was born. The notion of people developing into jobs and moving up vertically within their companies was born. And many most organizations had what we think of as today, one size fits most talent management solutions. You know, people were fitted to a particular model. And if it didn't work for you, well, you, you just have to go somewhere else. In that era, again, thinking back to this construct that was born in the second industrial revolution, capabilities were built at very high fixed cost. Think of the cost of Ford building an incremental factory once it, they had produced the maximum output from a, from an existing factory. Really high fixed costs, really high marginal costs. You fast forward from that second industrial revolution to the third industrial revolution in the 1960s. And as we saw in an era of significant growth, what we started to see was this notion of the democratization of information start to come into come to the fore. We saw companies, you know, starting to share capabilities with other companies. We saw companies change from just being the place that people came to do work between nine to five to increasingly becoming the nexus for contracts. Um, and we saw the advent of what we now know to be outsourcing as companies lifted and shifted work around the world to different locations. This was enabled by that democratization of information, our ability to look outside the walls of our company and understand the cost capabilities and risks of work being done elsewhere. In that era, we shared capabilities at much lower marginal cost, and the average savings were about 30%. You fast forward to the fourth industrial revolution and kind of where we've been for the better part of the last 20 years. And what you see is the proliferation of mobile technology, 5G, the proliferation of low-cost sensors that are generating the data needed to feed AI and AI itself realizing the potential that was first envisioned of it back in the late 50s. And what you start to see are companies built on these enabling technologies and that democratization of information in the third industrial revolution becoming the democratization of work in the fourth industrial revolution. This notion of the company as a platform uh, within, within an open ecosystem has really risen to the fore. And what we were able to show, my co-author John Boudreau and I, uh, in our work together over the course of the last 10 years or so is as organizations democratize information, what they started to see were significant gains in speed and, and much lower cost. Those 30% gains that we saw in the third industrial revolution increasingly became 70 and 80% gains in efficiency, access to new capabilities, and speed and innovation. And this notion of work becoming, moving beyond this, this thing called a job to things like gigs, um, to agile marketplaces was born. Now, what we start to see also are capabilities not being bought or rent or shared, but capabilities being rented at virtually zero marginal cost. Think of the cost of Uber adding an incremental driver or an incremental customer relative to the cost of Ford building another factory to produce another car. Significant difference in that cost structure. And then as we fast forward into this world of perhaps a post-Fourth Industrial Revolution world, what we're starting to see is this notion of the democratization of work get accelerated exponentially. We're starting to see 
from that one-to-one relationship between a job and a job holder, and I'd actually back it up to a degree, a job and a job holder, to increasingly the many-to-many between that unique bundle of skills that's Nate and the many different ways in which he could contribute to work versus that unique bundle of skills that's Robin and the many different ways in which he could contribute to work and the many different nano and micro upskilling opportunities that enable the closing of very specific skill gaps. We're starting to see, and we'll explore this in a couple of seconds, AI becoming an essential work partner because when you're managing a much simpler ecosystem of that one-to-one relationships where people are either moving up or moving laterally as new work emerges to the many-to-many and literally each of us having dozens and dozens of opportunities to take on new bodies of work and develop into develop new skills, you need algorithms to be at the heart of that ecosystem. And that's really was at the heart of why my co-author John and I wrote our fourth book together, Work Without Jobs, which was published by the MIT Press just this last year, essentially introduce a new work operating system to enable the seamless connection of talent to work, to enable the seamless incorporation of automation into the flow of work, and to ensure that learning and development was seamlessly integrated into that new work equation. So we'll spend some time exploring some of that. Now, again, it's this longer term trajectory of how work is done, and I Thank you again for enduring um, this the history lesson and, and bearing with me. Now, against that longer term trajectory, what we have seen is a massive acceleration as a result of this pandemic. Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said in June of 2020 that we've seen a two-year trend in digitalization get realized in the first two months of this pandemic. And I would actually argue that the impact on the future of work has been far more profound. It is more like a 20-year journey that has been realized in the, in the two months, uh, in the two years rather, or three years, that we've been uh, experiencing the pandemic. And let me tell you why. There are two primary forces that underpin the future of work. The first certainly is digitalization and automation and, and AI, and we've seen massive ex- advances in that, particularly since last November with the advent of generative AI and its manifestation in in platforms like ChatGPT and DALI2, et cetera. But the other arguably more powerful, some might argue more insidious force, is what we call the democratization of work. So our growing ability to decouple work from its traditional confines of space, time, and structure. And when you overlay those two forces, both independently and the multiplier effect they have on each other, that's why I believe we've seen more like a 20-year trend get pulled forward in the last two to three years. And just as one marker of that acceleration, in 1970, Alvin Toffler, the great futurist, wrote about us living in electronic cottages. And in 50 years in the United States, we went from zero to 6% of all work being done full-time remote. And then as we all know, in March of 2020, we went from six to almost 60%. And, uh, you know, that number has been dialed back a little bit as we've started to emerge from the pandemic and it's closer to 30% today, but we are certainly not going back to zero. And that just captures two of the dimensions of work, the where of work and the when of work. And as we know, the future of work is much broader than that. It encompasses not just the where and when of work, it encompasses how work is done. It encompasses what the work is and the job content. You know, back in the 90s, for those of us who've been around um, and done this for a while, 
this thing called job sharing was all the rage. And it's one of the hardest topics. It has been one of the hardest topics for the last year for many companies as the pursuit of flexibility has become increasingly important for much of the talent that we engage with. It also includes the who of work, our trade-offs between an employee in a full-time job versus an employee in an agile talent pool versus a gig worker versus the use of automation and AI. And it also includes the why of work. Why should I engage with you as an enterprise? How does your mission align to the impact I want to leave in the world? And so these six dimensions, really foundational to the future of work, and it's certainly much more than what I think is so much of the conversation today about hybrid versus remote versus on-site. It's a much more expansive conversation. But what we've seen with the pandemic is a significant acceleration, as I said a second ago. We've also seen a pivot on the part of many organizations from a traditional focus on growth, efficiency, and return to a more inclusive focus on resilience, flexibility, and agility. And when I think of what that actually means, I think of five things that underpin this pivot to resilience, flexibility, and agility. One is companies taking a more portfolio-based approach to work, having leaders with the discipline, the tools, the mindset to understand where do we need to introduce automation? Where do we need to substitute maybe an employee in a full-time role with substitute some of his or her activities with the use of automation? Where do we augment that person's skills with through the use of gig talent? But do we understand where one option makes the most sense versus another? And do we have the tools to seamlessly switch across this portfolio of work options? Much in the same way, we make decisions around our financial assets and our financial portfolio. The second key variable is are we redesigning work for a much more agile future? We know that geopolitical forces, we know that the climate crisis are all going, just to pick on two things, are all going to place a massive premium on our agility to adjust. And so how do we transcend the frictional cost of jobs? How do we create much greater agility in flowing talent to work? So that's the second key variable. The third is from a leadership perspective. How do we increase the amount of leadership and decision-making from the edges of the enterprise to drive more agility? The edges of the enterprise where threats like the pandemic are most acutely felt, where geopolitical crises like the war in Ukraine are most acutely felt, the edges of the enterprise where innovation has its highest payoff. Do we have leaders on the edges who have the tools, capabilities, and decision rights to make those decisions with the level of effectiveness and efficiency that perhaps our more senior leaders might have traditionally had. The fourth dimension is just thinking beyond ourselves. One of the really intriguing responses to the pandemic was how companies collaborated with each other. We saw in Germany, McDonald's sharing its talent with Aldi, the retailer, as McDonald's restaurants were closed and demand for Aldi's goods and services increased exponentially. In the United States, we saw a number of airlines share their baggage handlers with the distribution hubs of a number of large retailers, given the close matching of skills required of baggage handlers with those required in those distribution hubs. And then the, the last dimension to this is as we look forward, what is the pivot to Web 3.0 and the metaverse actually mean for the future of work? Now, I know things like virtual land were all the rage like, um, you know, a couple of minutes ago. But what I'm most intrigued by are is the potential to radically rethink the deployment of talent to work. We've seen organizations in France shift the operation of their lift trucks to the Philippines 
as a result of the reduction in latency from 5G. We've seen the rise of distributed autonomous organizations to fundamentally transform how talent is connected to work. And so I'm hoping that context is helpful as we think about from that historical perspective to kind of what's coming next. As we jump into the framework, uh, frameworks I want to share with you, I want you to consider two questions that I think are going to be really pivotal for us as we think about the future of work. Two questions that I think every business leader is going to be grappling with for the next 10 years or so. One, how will we redesign work to enable talent to flow to it as seamlessly as possible while ensuring that that talent has the right signals, assets, and resources to enable its perpetual reinvention, continuously upskilling and reskilling as the work changes? Secondly, how will we re-envision that talent experience so that we are meeting more and more individuals on their individual terms, as opposed to forcing them to fit or comply with a one-size-fits-most solution that might have worked way back in that second industrial revolution, but is no longer fit for purpose, given the diversity of needs that we see uh, coming from the global workforce. So two questions that I'd like you to keep in mind as we, we talk about the future of work. Now, underpinning much of these shifts, as, as I've kind of alluded to, and, and you've probably already gleaned, is a fundamental change in that job-to-work relationship that I, I talked about at the beginning. We're seeing a new reconfiguration, if you will, of that talent supply and demand equation as a result of this plurality of means we have for getting work done, whether it's AI, whether it's gig workers, different ways of organizing work within companies. And we're starting to see this pivot from that one-to-one -one relationship between a person and a job where you had very high frictional cost associated with work, talent either moved up or moved horizontally, to increasingly the many-to-many -many between skills and work. With AI and automation, a, a true work partner in the redistribution of work and the connecting of talent to work through many different means, uh, continuously adjusting to changes in supply and demand, continuously sending signals to the talent and the organization. And what we're seeing is a much more agile work ecosystem that is much more fit for purpose. And I think if we are deliberate in designing in space for learning and well-being into the flow of work, a much more ethical, equitable and inclusive one. Now, it was against this shifting context that my co-author, John Boudreau, and I wrote Work Without Jobs, How to Reboot Your Work Operating System. And the reason we wrote it was that we firmly believe that leaders need a new work operating system. What we have grown up with for the last 140 years just is no longer fit for purpose. And if we continue to rely on it to resource and organize all our work, we are going to be left wanting. And what we need instead is a work operating system that supports a high degree of organizational agility, as I've just talked about. One that is essential to enabling us to navigate the rapid change and disruption that we continue to see. And one that better reflects the fluidity of modern work and work arrangements. And now underpinning this work operating system, and we will share with you all um, an excerpt from the book, so you have a sense of uh, what it is I'm talking about, along with a piece that I just wrote for Forbes last week. But underpinning this work operating system are four principles. And I want to take you through these principles and illustrate them before we go to some questions. The first is starting with the work, the current and existing uh, work, not how we organize that particular work. So what are the tasks and activities that exist today? What are the ones that are coming? 
And how do we best organize that as opposed to looking at the existing structure of jobs? And I'll go into each of these principles in detail, but I'd like to give you a quick overview to start with. The second key principle is how do we achieve the optimal combinations of humans and automation for those tasks and activities? Do we understand where highly repetitive rules-based work can be substituted? Do we understand where human creativity, empathy, critical thinking can be augmented by tools like machine learning and deep learning? Do we understand where the presence of automation either creates space for new human work or creates demand for new human skills? One of the things that John and I illustrated in our third book together, Reinventing Jobs, that was published by the Harvard Business Review, is that the organizations who lead with the work, as opposed to the ones who lead with the sexy new technology, consistently achieve higher order outcomes because they see those three nuances that I've talked about, what's substituted, what's augmented, and what's created, versus the ones who lead with technology, who consistently see a binary narrative between the tech and the talent in that role. And we illustrated that with about 130 case studies in reinventing jobs. So that's the second principle. The third principle, now that we've figured out the optimal combinations of humans and automation, is what's the best way to connect talent to the work? Should it be an employee in a full-time role? Should it be an employee in an agile talent pool? Should it be a gig worker? Should it be uh, a centralized shared services construct? What's the best way for talent to engage with the work? And then lastly, how do we consistently and continuously reduce the frictional cost of work, enabling talent to flow to work and address opportunities as they emerge, as opposed to drawing this tight, impermeable box around that individual and telling her that she is in a fixed job and that's all she she can do versus giving her the opportunity to express and acquire skills in truly in the spirit of agile. So I wanna just unpack these four principles and just talk about, just illustrate them with some frameworks and some examples. So when we talk about understanding the current work and the current tasks, as opposed to how we organize them in jobs, the core capability required to do that is what we call deconstruction. And there's two dimensions to deconstruction. One is classifying the tasks and activities into some very specific continuums of choice. Is the work repetitive versus variable? Is the work done independently versus asynchronously versus interactively and collaboratively with colleagues and or customers? Is the work physical versus mental in nature? So that classification is really important. When you take a job and break it down into its activities, or you take a workflow and break it down into its activities and classify them in this way, you get a clear sense of the types of activities and their nature. And what this lets you do then, as I'll talk about in a second, is it starts to create the conditions to identify the specific role of automation. But merely classifying them is insufficient. You also need to ask the question of what are we trying to solve for? This is a technique called return and improve performance that was developed by my co-author, John, that we have used and adapted with thousands of organizations. And what we've consistently seen is when you look at any body of work in an organization, across industries, geographies, you name it, there are four distinct outcomes associated with that work. One is where we're looking to eliminate errors, where the objective function of the work is to eliminate errors. Think of the work of a driller on an oil rig or an airline pilot. Much of that work is focused on eliminating errors, not innovation or creativity, but we need 100% 
of people doing that work or machines doing that work to reduce the likelihood of an error because of the significant negative consequence of that error. The second key variable is minimizing variance. So think of a lot of transaction processing work. Once we hit a certain speed, certain level of quality, we need everyone operating in a very tight zone of performance. So variance minimization is the objective function. A third variable is the what you might expect in your typical sort of sales role. It's called incremental productivity. More performance, generally better for the organization. This is what you see in sales roles. You see it in many types of roles. But And there also is a fourth relationship. It's what we call an exponential relationship. Small improvement in performance yields exponential value to the organization. This is what we see in Think of the teams at Moderna and Pfizer working on the vaccine in 2020. Small improvement in performance, massive value to the organization and to society. When you combine these two pieces of analysis, the deconstruction into the tasks and the classification and the analysis of return improved performance, when you combine those two and then you look at, and this takes us into principle two, what are the different types of automation? In our various books, we've looked at robotic process automation, artificial intelligence, including machine learning, deep learning, generative AI, as well as what we call social robotics. So think of, unlike the old days where equipment was static and fixed, think of equipment that is mobile with sensors to be able to sense its environment, with intelligence to be able to turn that data from the sensors into information, and the ability to interact with either other pieces of equipment or with humans. And against those three broad categories of automation, what you start to see then is where that automation, given the classification of the tasks, and the return and improved performance, we see where a particular type of automation can substitute the work of the human. Typically, it's highly repetitive, rules-based work. We see where automation can augment the skills of the human. Interactive work that maybe where maybe AI or generative AI can fetch the data, can nudge, can provide sort of suggestions and recommendations, making each of us super productive. And we also see where new work is created, the work of teaching that social robot, that social robot how to interact with, other, with humans and other machines, the work of recalibrating, configuring it, etc. So that's that second principle of getting to the optimal combinations of humans and machines. So now that we've done that, then the third principle or question is, what's the best way to connect talent to work? And in our book, we talk about three models for connecting talent to work. The fixed model, which is the one we all know and love, right? And this is where you have an employee in a full-time job. Now, that's going to probably continue for certainly most of our lifetimes, right, as being a dominant part of how work is done because there is just a plain sufficient volume of work that needs to be done. Or there might be compliance and control reasons. For those of you who work in financial services or healthcare, you know well that compliance and control and regulation find their way into your business models through a series of requirements of people in very specific positions. And so that's going to continue on. And what governs that work, what organizes that work, job architectures, increasingly those job architectures are being updated with the new skills that are required of talent in various jobs as automation is introduced, as job job functions change. Now, what's fascinating is to see how these other two models uh, line up against that fixed model and think of the, the other two models as flex and flow. In the flex model, 
what you have is people might still be in jobs, but they have the flexibility to go express their skills in other domains or the flexibility to go acquire new skills in other domains. This is where we see the job starting to give way to skills as the currency for work. It's one of the reasons why so many organizations have invested in what are called internal talent marketplaces. These are artificial intelligence driven marketplaces that infer the skills of the talent that's there and matches those skills to emerging bodies of work, like assignments and projects and gigs. But employees are still in jobs. They just have the flexibility to go acquire skills and express them in different domains. One of the great examples of an organization that has done this well and is a poster child for the future of work is Unilever. And I'll come back to Unilever in a second to illustrate this flexible model. The third model is what I think of as being agile on steroids. And this is where talent is fully flowing to work. They might all be employees, but they're connecting to work through assignments and projects and gigs. And where this is becoming increasingly essential for many companies is as business models evolve, we're seeing certain skills be required across the enterprise. They can no longer be captive within IT or finance. Think data science, think your digital skills, think program managers and project managers. As work changes, we need these skills and capabilities across the company. We need them in marketing. We need them in HR. We need them in operations and customer analytics. And so by having skills be the currency for work, this talent is connecting to work across those different domains, not through a full-time job, but through a variety of different projects and assignments and gigs. And it becomes an opportunity, not just for companies to stretch these scarce skills across their business models, but also for that talent to keep acquiring new skills, expressing their skills in different domains, and continuously developing themselves as they take on different projects. And I'll illustrate that particular model in a second. But these three models, what we're seeing with companies is all three are existing at the same time. Certainly there is a move from fix to flex to flow. But what we're seeing, and this is where the complexity of the future of work continues to rise, is companies needing to manage all three across their business models. So let me in the next couple of minutes before we wrap up and go to questions, just illustrate that flexible model and that flow model. As I mentioned a second ago, Unilever to me is a great example of a company that gets that flexible model right. In 2020, they introduced their internal marketplace and, and rolled it out globally. And it was a way for them to introduce greater agility in their business model to enable people to do something different and exciting, do something different from their day job, enable people to upskill and acquire new capabilities by taking on projects in different domains, and also to get them to sort of see how they could chase their passion and take on things that they were passionate about. And it was fascinating to see how those early successes have led to some significant wins for that organization. In 2020, they unlocked 530,000 you know, additional hours, which is the equivalent of 241 FTEs. 90% of the talent that engaged in this marketplace learned something new and would do it again. They had 27,000 people on this flex marketplace in 2020. That number has increased exponentially to the point where today, I believe all 65,000 of their white collar talent have the opportunity to take on projects in this flexible way and to create projects resourcing work in an ever more agile construct. 
So to me, Unilever is a great example of the power of that flex model. Now, what about that flow model that I talked about? Well, one of the case studies we have in reinventing jobs is of a large insurance company that was getting frustrated because what they found that they needed data science skills across the organization, but the talent was captive in a single function. And so their CEO said, we're going to blow up, blow up this model. We're going to move away from our traditional matrixed geography-based you know, job family structure to an agile pool for this talent because we need them in customer analytics. We need them in claims. We need them in underwriting. And so they moved to kind of an ecosystem model where all of this talent was put into a shared pool and was connected to work through projects and assignments. But now what they had to do was break managers from that legacy model, right, of when I need work done, I do one of two things. I either delegate it to someone on my team or I go to HR and open a new job requisition. And instead, what HR had to do was to spin up a new center of expertise to teach managers how to design projects, because that's the only way you're going to get data science work done, because you can't go hire that talent. That talent is all now in a shared pool. And so that HR business partner sits down with that manager and they spec out. So let's say I'm a I'm standing up a new direct-to-consumer channel for this insurance company in Singapore. And I sit down with Nate, who's my center of expertise lead, and we say, well, I need a, you know, I need a customer interface. It's a mobile, it's a, it's a mobile site. It's also maybe a desktop site. I need to design an app, an app, you know, for this new channel that's going to require UI, UX design skills, you know, just to pick on one skill. I need a recommendation engine. That's going to require Python skills to be able to analyze our existing customers' portfolio to and, and to infer and make recommendations for new products, new new solutions that, that could be beneficial to their business. All of these skills are then posted to their marketplace. And their algorithm is looking at who has the skills, who has the availability to do this work, who might benefit from a developmental opportunity to do this work. And so all of those things are being factored into the, into the marketplace. And this marketplace was so incredibly successful for them. They actually saw a 600% gain in productivity within the first 18 months, because what it did was it significantly reduced the time to fill, if you will, or the speed with which work was being done. It significantly increased the visibility of the organization to different skills because the algorithm knew where people had different skills, where they had adjacent skills. Perhaps most important, it gave them much better insight into where work was emerging or declining. And this is a massive change for in most organizations where work is done in jobs because what we have are very opaque signals as to how work is changing. We rely on managers to tell the organization as to what's changing versus when you've got all of the work being done through a centrally coordinated algorithm. What you've got is that volume and velocity of work providing you with much better signals. And you get to see how demand for Python maybe is trending down and demand for Julia is trending up. And because you have insight into the skills of your talent, you now get to make learning recommendations. So if I'm that Python developer and I see this trend, I get a message from the algorithm that says, hey, Robin, you've got these great Python skills, but demand for Python is trending down and demand for Julia is trending up. Here's access to the two learning resources you need to close those skill gaps. Now you have a seamless connection between a demand signal, a snapshot of supply, insight into supply gaps, and investments to close those gaps.
all of this happening in real time. And that's the, the last thing that this does is it drives exponential speed and agility in addition to some of the productivity gains. So three models for connecting talent to work. And then the last principle, as I mentioned a while ago, was how do we continuously free our people up so that they are able to sort of take on project and work as they emerge. And as you move from fix to flex and flow, that's what you start to see. So I'm hoping that context the frameworks and some of these examples have been helpful. And uh, Nate, I think we'd love to go to some questions and answers. And uh, as I mentioned at, at the end, we'll also share some, some additional resources that you might find helpful. What would be some of your thoughts in, ch- in helping changing the mindset of the leadership, which I find to be some of the main obstacles? They, they want agility, but then when they see what the cost of investment of agility is, it intimidates them. Or... Do they really want to change it all? They're just going to put a little agility lipstick on the way they do things currently here, if I may say. Yeah, yeah, really, really good point, Nate. One of the things that we find essential is the sort of changes we're talking about, truly transformative, right? You know, I talk about a new work operating model. And with this sort of change, it's really important to address the legacy of where we've come from and to make the change in a very deliberate way. And so in the book, we talk about identifying triggers for these changes, because what you need are a set of proofs of concepts, some pilots to prototype some of these ideas. And so that business leaders can actually see the impact in a contained area And equally, you don't want to threaten the operational integrity of the business, right? Which is what many business leaders are concerned about. I don't want to make too much or too big a change because it's going to compromise my ability to meet the basic requirements of my customers or shareholders. And so there are three triggers that we think are important. One is, and I alluded to this in when I was talking about the principles, there's so many new advances in technology that are coming about. And we talked about a couple of them there. Before your business leaders run off and buy a new piece of technology kit, let's actually read, let's figure out how we lead with the work in a particular narrow area and then figure out how we apply these principles to make the most of the technology and the talent we have. So new technology is a great trigger, but doing it in a focused area where you are, you know, you've made a decision to introduce that technology. The second is where you have a bottleneck in your process. It could be a particular manufacturing process. In the book, we talk about a large distribution company and the challenges they had with their distribution processes and the bottlenecks that they had. How does your legacy response maybe not help you address some of those challenges? And that's where introducing these principles could be helpful in getting to a much higher order outcome associated with a pain point that you have today. So a bottleneck in the process is is often the, the second key requirement. And then the third key requirement or the third sort of trigger point will, if you will, is when you've got a business leader who is continuously challenging the status quo, might he or she be a partner to be able to test and push this forward? Because we know that, you know, in every organization, there are going to be business leaders who are sort of change averse. There are others who will sort of maybe tag along with a particular change. And there's going to be yet others who are going to push the envelope. 
can this person be an advocate for you? Can they be the ones that sort of grab onto this because they see the potential? And with these three triggers, how do you use these prototypes to bring the rest of the organization along? Because that's the thing that you need to do. It can't just be a successful prototype. It has to be one that's visible to everyone so that everyone says, oh, that's really cool. I want some of that too, because you know, I, I also want a 600% gain in productivity because that's going to help me get to my metrics. So I think starting in a focused way, but in a focused yet transparent and impactful way. And that's in line with some of the ways we want to do things, having identifying a pilot that isn't mission critical, but shows some value in the activity and showing that as a value component, lowering and fruit, and then just accelerate off of that. So great with that. Steven, I see you in, in, in uh, talking in text chat, asking about how can you ask questions. If you type in your question like you have listed there, uh, in text chat, we can see it and then we can speak to it if you can do that. In the meantime, if, if I may, I had a second question. We were talking about the whole socialization, the democracy and socialization of the workplace. And in the past, when you have the full time job, you had a second home at work. You had your desk, right? You put up all your pictures, you put all your whole areas up. And I saw with the with the, the Black Swan event of COVID and people start working more at home, companies changing their environments where they either sold off or leased out some of their property and went from works, uh, permanent workstations in the locations to desktop hoteling, where you come in with your laptop. How do you think that's affected the old paradigm and on how people feel their loyalty is to the company and their attachment to the company? Have you, have you heard anything in those areas? Yeah. You know, Nate, I do think this experiment, this amazing experiment around the where and when of work is going to be playing out for the foreseeable future. You know, we've seen companies respond in a variety of different fashions, right? You know, we saw, I think this last week, Disney facing maybe some uh, some some backlash from its workforce to the requirement that everyone be back in the office four days a week. We've seen other organizations say, you know what, we're you can choose where you want to work, you know, as long as you sort of meet your objectives and, you know, you can decide. And yet others have said, you know, we can be flexible. But in, in many instances, I think the, the good thing that is happening, Nate, is people are questioning and challenging the role of the workplace. And I do think, you know, we went through a period where you just showed up for work to do things that could be done, you know, quite easily elsewhere, right? And, and I think companies are now recognizing that when people are together, let's really make the most of that time that they're together. We don't need them doing heads down work in the office just because we want them in the office. But when, when they are together, let's make those connections happen. Let's also, even when they're remote, use technology to nudge and connect in many different ways. I did some work with a very large pharmaceutical company where we essentially leveraging some emerging technology tools, essentially you know, went from serendipitous connections at the water cooler to orchestrated serendipity, you know, where people might get nudges based on different things they're working on, based on algorithms being able to sort of look at where certain connections made the most sense, in addition to the ones that maybe sort of happened by chance. But you are seeing, Nate, you know, at the crux of your question is a fundamental redefinition of culture. Because, you know, in the good old days, you know, going back to my little history lesson at the beginning, culture really was defined by the walls of the organization. Culture happened 
between nine to five when you and I worked together and we talked about our kids, et cetera, the water cooler. And increasingly, culture is becoming defined by a set of shared experiences and a shared set of shared relationships that transcend that physical space. And instead, you're seeing a new set of artifacts define culture, a new set of increasingly digital artifacts that connect us, that unite us around a common mission and purpose. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it again. As we ask any questions, you've, you've given some awesome answers here. Stephen has uh, come up with a uh, question here in chat, and I'll, I'll try to get that off to you here. She says, obviously, job searching is not what it used to be either. How can we as employees for employers get to know what model a company has adopted? This is not a world that many of us grew up in, and and we may not understand how much things have changed and uh, how to deal with it. Yeah, you know, Stephen, re- really good question. I think it's, you know, it's really important, as it has always been, I guess, but there are more variables at play here that, you know, as you go into an organization, you go into it with your eyes wide open, understanding the, what is the organization's philosophy around flexible work, remote work, understanding the organization's philosophy around how work is resourced. Are you going to go into a traditional job-based model or like a Unilever, are they going to be more agile? Are they going to give you opportunities to take on projects in different areas because they understand that that's how you're going to grow and develop? And are you comfortable with that, right? Because that's the thing that we're also seeing in many organizations is companies need to be agile, but there are segments of the workforce that don't want to be agile. And that's fine, you know, but it may not make sense for you to remain a part of that company if that's where the company is going to. Or Maybe the company has multiple different models that allow give you the space to sort of remain, you know, to do what you're, you're really good at doing. So I think understanding what you're getting into, understanding how the company is evolving. But I think equally important, all of us have to own our own journey of perpetual reinvention. You know, just as companies are going to keep reinventing themselves, each of us needs to own that journey. And, you know, this recognition that that there there are no certainties, right? And and that's something that we've seen with every industrial revolution is, one of a better phrase, the death of certainty. And each of us increasingly sort of needing to own our, our own journey of perpetual relevance. And I think asking ourselves the question of, am I, do I have the the wherewithal, am I willing to make the investment to continuously keep re- retooling myself? Because you know, the best my employer can do is the promise of clarity for a changing world and the promise of continued relevance. But each of us needs to own, you know, where that takes us. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I don't see any uh, other follow-up questions here. So uh, I'm going to take this as a point for us to transition to our closing statements. First of all, Raven, amazing. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I asked for a favor and you gave me amazing returns, so I appreciate it. And I, I hope for an opportunity, you had said uh, as an example of you and I partnering up and working on something in the future. I hope I get the call for that sometime in the future. That would be a gig I'd love to do with you, sir. So uh, at this point, I'd like to transition and close out here. Uh, first of all, to uh, reemphasize that the point of these monthly sessions here are to give you timely, informative topics around leadership changes, technology changes, around other wonderful things that you need to do and to become better program managers, project managers, and leaders for your organization. That is my job to go out and hunt for you for that, to go out into the metaverse and find 
the not only the cream of the crop, but that thin thin layer on top of that cream of talent of thought leaders here that can talk about areas here. And I think I've, I've shown a little bit of evidence of doing that twice, but I need your help. So if you could reach out to our website and give additional ideas of what you want to see as we move this forward uh, into the future here. I want this to be customer centric. I promise you I'll be giving you a broad, diverse group of people that are thought leaders around the world with things that will help you along the way. But I got to know what's on your mind. I don't want to be from my mind only here. So if you could help me with that. The next thing I want to say is that how does this apply to our curriculum here at at, uh, Caltech CTME? One, if those who are interested in Ravin's lecture and possibly getting further work with him, I would I would encourage you to work with our director who's on connected here, Mike Ash, with the executive programs. Ravin ha- is has bundled his amazing story in many executive programs that have been very thoughtful and amazing. I would say go for it with that, and I think that'll be time well spent. Beyond that, we are fashioning within the regular course community. We are taking our business agility topic from the project management tactical area to evolving a course coming out here probably in the June-July timeframe on business agility and how we could incorporate some of these capabilities you heard from Ravin and also some of the things we heard from Diana Larson here on how to put this into execution. So keep your mind out for that and also give me some ideas of what you'd want to see in that course. And we also may have an, a, an executive version of that. Besides that, folks, thank you for coming out I think we've had great attendance in our first two topic areas here. Uh, I, with that said, please keep coming. I don't have a speaker lockdown just yet. I got a couple people in a tentative state here, but if you have any ideas of what you want to see, let me know. I still have time to change and we'll keep this on. Again, my job is to deliver you amazing thought leaders that you want to hear. And I'm up for the job, but I need us to work in co-partnership to co-create these sessions together. And again, Ravin, thank you so much. I, I hope to see you in future sessions here. Thank you for the support team that we have here. And folks, uh, with that, we're going to close out our session here. And I look forward to work with you on the third Tuesday of the month coming up in, in March. I believe it, it might even be the exact same date, maybe the 21st, if I, if I believe so. At the same time, we will bring you our next thought leader here along the way. Take care.